Do you know who I am? The man in between is searching for you. You are the hand. Why are you here? We were never away. For the first time, your mind is quiet enough to hear me. Why am I here? You have always been here. Hey, I never did know when to butt out. We're with you, Captain. Wherever this goes, however it ends, we're with you. An unknown power attacks, and the captain risks everything. What could go wrong? To save the station. Space of action! Ejecting! On the next. Oh, my God. Babylon 5. You have transmissions holding. Match incoming signal. Full audio and video decode. Purple files accessed. What you are about to see has never been shown to anyone outside the break house. there in podcast land welcome to gray 17 a babylon 5 podcast a part of the front row network and npr illinois community voices we are a group of newbies and first ones watching every single episode of babylon 5 and we are in season two actually this is the halfway mark in season two all alone in the night episode 11 i am scott and with me is emily blake justin jesse and john we're a few folks short today because of the holiday but uh we are gonna roll on and our stragglers will be joining us back here the next episode before we get started a reminder to check out the links below we are active on twitter facebook instagram we also have our patreon available if you want to join our discord and also get the behind the scenes show notes from our hosts and also please remember to hit that subscribe follow button as well as if you're watching on youtube the notify button so you can be made aware whenever we drop new content including on youtube live content and please also leave a review on your podcast app of choice i'm actually looking at a review today from audible believe it or not we are on audible as opposed to just spotify apple and the rest so if for some reason you want to listen to us with your audiobooks you can do that too so richard town writes in a must listen this is a must listen for any newbie or first one of the Babylon 5 universe. Love the different viewpoints and insights had by all the podcast castmates. As a first one, I'm enjoying experiencing my favorite show through new eyes. Thanks, Richard. And if you are listening to us on Audible, all like maybe 10 of you, please be sure to review as well. Let's go ahead and dive into our discussion on All Alone in the Night. And I believe John has toiled over a synopsis for us. I have. I wrote this one myself. This is not I'm Wikipedia. Not sure <laughs> okay. Delenn is summoned to the Great Council because a new leader is in place and they must decide if she can remain a part of the council or not. Lanier is his usual awesome self and goes with her to support her. After some unusual sightings, Sheridan channels his best Sinclair impression and decides to go check shit out for himself, even though Ivanova tells him what a dumb idea that is. Franklin turns out to be a Dodgers fan, explaining even more why I dislike him. As expected, shit hits the fan and the escort is attacked by an alien ship, forcing Sheridan to eject himself and get kidnapped by said aliens 
While Ramirez is left to take to make it back to Babylon 5 to report what happened, Ivanova greets General Haig, who is visiting Sheridan on a need-to-know basis. Talen finds out that she's been booted from the Great Council because there's some punk bitches, and she asks for a chance to make a statement to the Council about remaining as the Minbari ambassador on Babylon 5. Sheridan is experimented on by the aliens and forced to fight a Drazi and a Narn. Sheridan kills the Drazi and disables the Narn enough to remove the device, seemingly controlling him. He passes out and has a crazy-ass dream featuring shady-ass Kosh. Talen finds out that Narun has replaced her on the Council, giving the warrior cast the majority, again, like the punk bitches they are. They do allow her to remain ambassador. Sheridan manages to escape his hole with the Narn and get to an escape pod right before the Agamemnon and the rest of the crew comes to destroy the alien ship. Sheridan meets with General Haig, who lets him know that his tinfoil hat is warranted and the shit is on. So is he on their side or not? Sheridan decides he is on the team. and He's going to bring along Garibaldi, Ivanova, and for some reason, Franklin. You're a fucking clown. I feel like that was my best <laughs> work. That was I, solid I, work. I liked it. Oh, yeah. I, solid effort. <laughs> I, I will say with that, I think Nicole is firmly present in this episode, mm-hmm. even though she's not here. Way to go, John. She's in our hearts and our shitty hearts. Okay, so we've been waiting for this episode to come for a bit now. Uh, we've been discussing it beyond the rim a couple times. And I mentioned in our last week's episode that I am waiting for Justin to flail his arms into the air and say victory when it comes to the grand conspiracy in the government. So let's go to our newbie impressions and talk to Justin first. First impression, sir. Hell yeah. I love this episode. Honestly, the last 15 minutes of the episode made sitting through the rest of it 150% worth it for me. Um, not that I disliked the episode. I didn't hate it. But um, I, I'm a couple of just things at first. I, I'm glad to see baseball still around in, in uh, 2259. Um, I do have uh, I do have opinions about the Mars baseball team that we can get to if we ever get to it. Um, I do feel bad for Delenn. Yeah, I mean, although I didn't, I'm not shocked that this happened. I think we all kind of saw this coming that that she ended up getting kicked off the Gray Council and now she's completely alienated. Humans won't accept her. Minbari won't accept her. So I'm kind of curious to see kind of where she where she fits in going forward. I'm glad to see that the Gray aliens do actually exist. And they do still probe people. The one thing that I thought was really interesting with that is the race is called the Streams. And I wonder if that's a throwback to Whitley Strieber, who wrote Communion. Okay, Scott's nodding his head. Yeah. So that's as soon as I said that, I'm like, wait a second. And I Googled it real quick, Communion. And I'm like, okay, I know where they got that from then. So that was a cool throwback, JMS. I see what you did there. Yeah, definitely. I I don't remember liking Haig very much when I first saw him in a previous episode. I think we got to see him um, in season one at one point, right? No, it was, was season it two. Season two. Yeah, it was um, when uh, he was dropping off. Uh, well, not dropping off, but informing Ivanova that Sheridan was coming. Okay, kind of remember him coming off as a little bit dickish back then, but I kind of like the guy now. He's one of me, so he's definitely one of my people, and uh, I can't wait for this grand conspiracy to unfold. To the stream point, this is actually the second time you've seen a gray alien. Because remember, Grail, the guy was suing another Grailian, which JMS has pointed out, not the same species, but was suing him for probing his great-great-granddaddy. So JMS, oh, that's right. Really, I forgot about that scene. <laughs> JMS is a big fan of like the aliens from the old sightings TV show in the 90s. Let's go to uh, Jesse. First impressions. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. This is what I've been promised since the beginning oh it gets better it gets better it gets better and i think that we're finally here because even um gropos i didn't hate and so you know considering the um 
the first season and how terrible some of the episodes were, even the bad episodes this season haven't seemed so bad. So this episode was good. I can't wait to watch the next one. Um, I'm finally at a point where I'm like starting to kind of hate that we can't just binge it like you guys can. So I enjoyed it. Not only did I not hate it, I actually liked it. Emily. I liked it. I was... <sighs> There was something about that for as much information as we got, something in the episode felt a little lackluster, but I'm not entirely sure what it was. And I I know we've seen Hague before, but I'm still not convinced he's trustworthy. Something about him just isn't sitting right with me. I know, Scott, I see you shaking your head, but you know I have trust issues. This is not surprising to anybody. But you didn't have half of these trust issues in season one. This is like somebody flipped the switch like five episodes ago, and now Emily hates everybody. I don't hate everybody. It's just there's a lot going on. So now it's kind of like, who can you actually trust? But I mean, it, it was a good episode, though, and there was actually quite a bit going on. And John, first impression. Emily, what B5 character hurt you? Why are you this way now? <laughs> uh, I enjoyed this episode. It wasn't a favorite. Probably give it in the B range. Uh, I didn't particularly care for most of the Sheridan plotline. The Delenn plotline I thought was the star. I will say it is... It's nice, this episode, giving us the friction in both the human and Minbari politics and see um, that divide and the, the xenophobia on both sides that it's there. Uh, it sucks that Delenn's kind of caught in the middle of it based off of her choice and um, seeing a, a theme, right, occurring more and more about peace versus um, war, obviously, but also, you know, do you want to have peace together collectively? Can we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya or will only the strongest survive? So um it was a good episode overall. We can get into it. Again, Franklin being a Dodgers fan would only be worse if he was a Cubs fan, but it makes sense. And like Justin, I it would be I'm definitely happy to talk about Mars baseball. Oh sigh, you cardinal people. I will say I swear I'm just going to assume and I have no proof of this that the whole knock against Mars being able to hit harder home runs because they're in 40% G is absolutely a knock against the Colorado Rockies who started their inaugural season the year before this came out or two years before this came out. I think JMS is a Rockies hater like most people are. Well, and that was actually a big consideration of why people were against ever having a team in Denver in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's just, so that's like straight out of the news. Yeah. And, but, they, but they've been horrible for 30 years. Yeah, they stick their ball in the humidor and they're fine. Yeah. Let's go over to, we only have two of us this week, Blake, so Beyond the Rim's going to be fun. Blake, first one, first impression. So I actually like this episode, and I think it gives us the setup that we've been waiting for. Uh, this is where season two kind of starts to really get the foot on the gas with the storyline, I think, uh, because you get that exposition, that last 15-minute bit with General Hegg in in the quarters with Sheridan and going through that piece is really kind of the whole purpose of this episode. But the rest of it, uh, I also think this starts to set up a bit of a dynamic between Sheridan and Delenn because you've got Delenn showing up in the flyer there at the end. You know, she just gets booted off the Great Council and all of a sudden shows up. So I, I like that part of the storyline too that has Delenn coming in uh, at the end with that also. This is what I think we're going to see a lot more of too. And we've already seen, and as you rewatch seasons one and what we've seen in season two, I think you'll start seeing it more. Even the episodes that seem like they really don't matter. There's little bits of lore 
sprinkled in. We've got an interaction that I don't think any of you mentioned so far between Kosh. Well, yeah, actually, you did a little bit. Kosh and Sheridan in his dream. And then, of course, as you guys have mostly mentioned already, too, that last few minutes where now if you go back to the start of season two and watch Sheridan throughout at his oh shucks but be a demeanor and his uh talking about how he likes to collect conspiracy theories and everything else it all kind of builds together that there's a reason why sheridan's been there for six months so i really do enjoy that this episode does it and this episode brings back a guest actor who we got to interview in season one marshall teague anyone catch marshall and under all the makeup no was he narun he was the narn yeah yeah, that was Marshall, our good friend from Infection. So it's always good to have him back. And uh, he actually talked about uh, this character a little bit in our interview with Marshall that none of you are able to listen to yet. <laughs> Let's go ahead and dive in, guys, where we want to start. John. I'm happy to talk about, again, what I thought was my favorite plot line. I guess, I guess you could say it's the B plot. I don't know. It felt kind of evenly handled, but um, Delenn's situation. So um, as you've mentioned about little droplets here and there, these are obviously bigger droplets leading up to it uh we've seen her be questioned multiple times about look is she human or is she minbari and as narun kind of makes mention you know the, the minbari don't seem to want her anymore the humans don't seem to want her as they don't really trust her and she's kind of in this weird limbo um that i think will be interesting from two episodes ago when we saw sinclair and and his kind of new mission and, and his thing where maybe she fits into that and obviously she got the the message at the end as well so it seems like she's going to hold on to her ambassador spot i wouldn't trust any of those assholes with a 10 foot pole, but at least she's there and she's trying to make stuff happen. And, and, um, you know, they've made, they made mention of the um, prophecy, which I think they flat out said now is the shadow war. So I think we know what that, that prophecy is. I think the Minbari, uh, at least the religious casts have, have predicted or has seen this, um, shadow war coming, which again, I'll bring up to you, Scott, since we just mentioned our culpability poll, uh, I would like to nominate all of Minbar apparently for knowing what the F was happening and saying nothing. Um, but it just, it stinks that Delenn, who's a character I've come to enjoy is stuck in this uh, no man's land that, uh, you know, I don't know if it will neuter her in terms of what she can and can't do. Um, I think to Blake's point, her being able to come back and say, oh, I know these fucks. Here's how we handle them. And then giving that message like, hey, remember last time we talked? Here it comes uh, to, to the aliens collecting people. So hopefully she'll still be able to have, have an impact. Yeah, I do love when the Minbari every now and then just wave their big stick around. I mean, it's not just the Earthlings that they have smacked around. Now it's the gray aliens and everyone else. They just kind of go around and beat people up and then come back later and say, hey, remember us? We're back. Well, again, that's kind of one issue. And I, if I have one fault with this, just in the plot line, you know, we, we hear with the Earth Membari War where the Membari just went all after Earth, all the way back to the Battle of the Line. But you hear with this one where they whooped their ass, but they didn't seem to go quite as far with it as they did with Earth. So there's, there's almost a little bit of an inconsistency there in the storyline um, with the Membari reaction to certain things. Apparently it depends on the day as to how pissed off they get. Well, it also depends on how hurt they get, which um, we can get into that more when we get into uh, episodes later on. And I'll leave it at that. Jesse, what do you got? The whole Dylan thing really was kind of hard to watch because she begged them to not do what they did. And so when he said, you don't have a place with us or them, it like was heartbreaking because you could tell how much it hurt her. Um, but it was nice to see Lanier stand by her 
And even she said, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And he basically said, I don't care. Like, I get it. It's fine. We're here together. I, you know, pledged that I would, I would walk by you and that's what I'm going to do. That whole plot line was difficult to watch because you could, she's such a good actress that you can, it looks like she is absolutely heartbroken and you can feel it. Like you can feel it come through the screen. Yeah. I would add to that too. It's not just being heartbroken for what's happened to her, but she has seen things unravel Mm -hmm. for her culture now. I mean, we have this Grey Council, which is, I think, really for the first time, really described to you all in this episode. You've got three workers, three religious, three warrior, and now all the warrior cast has to do is get one worker or one religious cast member to vote for them, and the warrior cast can basically dictate terms. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be interesting, especially... You all mentioned Sinclair already. How does this infect, uh, uh, impact Sinclair, who is both an ambassador to Mimbar, but also working with the Rangers now? How does this impact the Rangers going forward? There's a lot of questions left there. Justin, what do you got? I mean, 100% echo everything Jesse said. It was definitely really hard to watch. And just watching kind of everything Delenn has gone through this season really gives me kind of, we've, we've made comments in the past about how, you know, this show and topics discussed in this show can still have relevance today. And then you see what's going on with the LGBTQ community and stuff like that. And it definitely, um, it, it hits close to me personally. As I, as I know other people. So I definitely, my heart breaks for her. And, but I think she'll still be okay. I think she'll realize that Babylon 5 is her true home and those are her people. And I think she'll be definitely still maintain all the same um, authority and stuff like that, like she did before. It's just she's going to have to figure out who she is from here. And that's going to be the journey that we're going to watch her see, you know, watch her take. Um, the whole thing, I know Blake had mentioned, like, where she came in and saved Sheridan at the end. Uh, was I the only person who thought that was just way too convenient? That was my really my only thing with the episode is all of a sudden Delenn comes back and she goes, oh, I know exactly who these people are and how to beat them. Okay, let's go get them, boys. That was the only problem that I had with that whole issue. But I really think that's the fact that the warrior cast is now in charge of Minbar essentially is dangerous. And I think that's going to cause the Minbar you're going to see the Mimbari become a lot more aggressive um, in certain scenes from here on out is what I think is going to happen. And yeah, who knows what's going to happen with the earth Minbar relationship with that happening, because I don't think Naroon is definitely a fan of earthlings at all. So we may see a lot of strained relations there again. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with you on the, the, the plot point there, because if she was on station, the ambassadors would have been told he's missing and she would have said the same thing. The difference is that she was off station when it happened. So all plot is based on contrivance. So yeah. in the grand scheme of things, I don't I don't know if I, I, I don't agree with you on that, but I can see where you're coming from. I just don't agree. Fair enough. And if, you know what? I'm thinking about it. I can see your point too. So who knows? It could have just been my thoughts at the time watching it. Mm-hmm. John, what you got? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, shout out my boy Lanier again. Um, you know, Delenn lets him know that, you know, she must do this alone. And then, you know, he gives her the sweet, never alone Delenn. And then even afterwards, when she comes out and, you know, Satai Delenn, he's like, no, nope, just Delenn. He was like, all right. And she's like, you know, this is going to be, it's going to be rough. I think she said something about I'm going to walk through darkness and fire. And he was like, you know, I'll be there with you. I mean, she tells him, you know, you go away and save yourself, your reputation, your family, like go be, you know, maybe a rising star still in Minbar. And he's like, nope, I pledge myself to you and I'm going to be a ride or die with you. And uh, I just thought Lanier, again, every time he's on screen, has just shown over and over again what a terrific 
person character Minbar he is, uh, but then the, you know the acting itself is is fantastic. So I just want to shine more light. We've we've seen these minor characters like Veer, who's these um, attaches that are just killing it every episode. Anyone else get the friend zone vibe with Lanier? By the way, he is definitely looking at Delenn di- differently than Delenn looks at him. Absolutely. Emily, what do you got? Yeah, I really liked Lanier in this episode. And I'm wondering how much does he actually know? Because his character is definitely played as like his role of, you know, you're nice, you're polite, and you do what Delenn says. But it makes me wonder, like, underneath all that, does he actually know more about what's going on than people assume he knows? Like, cause he, he told Delin, yeah, I'm with you all the way. And she's trying to tell him, no, you don't know. And he's like, mm, I'm still with you, which makes me think he has a, he knows more about what's going on behind the scenes than she might realize he knows, if that makes sense. Scott, I see that look yeah. on your face. It's for her. I just love the fact, again, it was like a light switch. Aside from the whole Delin and Sinclair are married, you have not gone down this path. Married. I rewatched it. I stand by that. That was aside, aside from that one point, you definitely hit on a lot. You have now everyone is in on it. <laughs> no, You're I'm like... just wondering. Not like he's in on it, but he knows more than she thinks he does. Not in a bad way, just he's doing his job by knowing this information and standing by her. I'm gonna start calling you yeah. Oliver Stone. And since John asked who hurt me, it was Londo. Londo, by working with those damn murdery shadows, he hurt me. It's his fault. No, no. Emily's point, though, with that is with these individuals, these kind of supporting background cast, the attaches, you've got Veer working with Londo, you've got Lanier working with Delenn, uh, an occasional assistant for Jakar. Their job is to know things. They see what comes through there. And I mean, even within the real world, Scott, when you're talking about staffers for anybody, they oftentimes know more than what people think they know or let on they know. So I could absolutely see where Emily's coming from on this one, that Lanier has a better idea of what's going on than what the writers have let us in on at this point. Yeah, because like Veer absolutely knew what Londo was doing behind the scenes and knew some of that. Which is why he's not innocent. Yeah. Even nope. though 57, whatever percent of you said in the poll he was, right. but. And I, I feel like Linear knows enough to make it, understand how to calculate the risk of staying by her side, regardless of what is decided for her and her position. And he definitely has a crush on her. There's yes. some deals there. <laughs> John. Yeah, I wanted to switch gears and talk about that crazy ass dream of uh, Sheridan. So uh, I'm going to go over what happened just real quick because I, I want to kind of dissect it. So, because usually I'm not a fan of dream sequences. They're usually pretty clunky. Even a show that I love, The Sopranos, that that I think did them fairly well. Sometimes they still grade on me, but this one was crazy interesting. Um, so Sheridan wakes up in his quarters. They're all, it's a very dark room. Uh, he turns and sees Ivanova standing there, hair over her left shoulder. She puts a finger in her mouth, says, shh. A black raven appears on her shoulder. Do you know who I am? She asks. He then turns around and looks and sees himself uh, on a like a corridor of something of B5, uh, standing at a platform bathed in white light. Uh, then he turns and sees another figure, which is Garibaldi, um, also bathed in white light with a small dove, I believe, on his shoulder. And he says, the man is between the man in between is searching for you. Uh, then Garibaldi, I'm sorry, Sheridan turns around again. And he also interesting that this time now is wearing a black psychop uniform and facing Ivanova again in a veil. 
and she says, you are the hand. Then he turns, he's back in his regular normal uniform and sees Kosh and says, why are you here? Kosh says, we were never away. For the first time, your mind is quiet enough to hear me. Why am I here? You have always been here, Kosh says. And then he wakes up. Lots, lots of banana shit to, to dissect there. Um, the, the Ivanova thing, I don't know what was going on with the veil, the bride. You are the hand, the hand that will like guide this war will guide what's going to happen in this war, um, which I, I don't know. I thought that was going to be uh, Sinclair since we saw future Sinclair coming back and, and ensuring a little time travel stuff. Uh, again, Kosh, Shady showing up in dreams now. We're talking about, uh, oh, no, we were we were always here. So uh, it, a lot happening there. I, I, I kind of want to hear other people's thoughts about what they interpreted that as. Come Anyone on, all you Freuds out there. Let's go. Want to hear my tinfoil? <laughs> Oh, please tell us how Kosh is in on it. Um, well, if they figured out Membarian humans are linked, then is Sheridan like part Vorla? <laughs> like, with you've always been here, your mind's quiet enough, like, there's some weird connection there. I'm waiting for the look and the <laughs> I, I can't say anything because I. We're going to talk about this beyond the rim. So, <laughs> you newbies, what do you got? <laughs> Justin, you going to take this tinfoil hat back? You got any interpretation of that dream? I he was mean, wearing a honest... cop uniform. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't catch that part. I think I was too busy going back and forth trying to take notes and then, like, stopping my uh, – because I'm watching it on my Xbox One, so hitting the X button and trying to write and then watch a little bit more. And So I was getting kind of a little bit convoluted uh, during that scene. But, yeah, I mean, uh, it's – it's really I don't know what to think about it to be honest. Um I I I I don't want to go down to like the Battlestar Galactica all of this has happened before and will happen again um type route but that was kind of the vibe it was giving me honestly. Like we we've, we've heard mention of this war that that happened thousands of years ago between um the shadows and the rest of the galaxy and then now we're kind of seeing the shadows become rejuvenate and um, the only thing that I can think of right now, and of course I'm coming, I'm swinging way out of left field on this, is, you know, maybe we're hearing the the souls of those people who fought the shadows off the first time, and maybe some of those souls are present in some of these current actors uh, within the uh, within this drama that's playing out before us. Um, again, that could just be me being tainted by another show that kind of used that same kind of um, operation, but that's really kind of the whole vibe though I got from it is that it's, it's cause we really don't even know who the Vorlons were. Um, and that's one thing that still is kind of the big missing puzzle piece to me in a lot of this is uh, were the Vorlons, you know, we know they're kind of like a light being, but were they a race, an actual physical race that fought the shadows the first time. And that's why they're just kind of watching and seeing how the rest of the galaxy reacts to everything. I don't know, but I agree with John. There's a lot going on there, but I don't particularly know how to fully digest it yet. Just bring on the soul hunters, huh? Emily, you had more? Yeah, but not tinfoilish. Um, so I kind of took the raven and the dove and being in between is like stuck between the dark and the light, maybe a good and evil reference. And the Psychor outfit in the hand, Hay came to the station to talk to Sheridan about Psychor manipulating the government. So that might be referencing Sheridan's role in maybe taking, trying to take down Psychor. 
and might be referencing that. Jesse, your I, thoughts. I had absolutely no fucking idea what was going on. Like I, <laughs> I had no fucking clue. Like you guys are light years ahead of me with the whole, oh, this, you know, your whole, your whole synopsis of what happened. And I'm like, okay, so I might've caught like half of that. And then I had no idea what was happening. It's like my crazy ass dreams. I don't try to make sense of them. I just wake up and hope they don't happen again. <laughs> I think what really stands out for me in this is usually, and to John's point, the dream trope is used a lot. But what stands out here is you have this dream and then at the end of the episode or close to the end of the episode, Kosh says the same thing. So it wasn't just a dream. I'm thinking back to one of my favorite movies in the 80s that no one's ever watched, The Explorers, where they realize they all had the same dream. So it wasn't just a dream. So Kosh is definitely saying, hey, I was in your head. Hi. So we're... Maybe the, uh, this would be a question. So then were Garibaldi and Ivanova also there? Or are they not quiet? Are their minds not quiet enough to have this shared dream? Because I, I it, was, it was weird seeing, so Ivanova with the black, right? She, she had the veil look like she was in mourning. She mm -hmm. had the raven, which in this context only, I would say, seemed negative because Garibaldi was the opposite, bathed in white, had the dove. And so that seems in conflict, which concerns me moving yeah. forward. Well, and when you think of the symbolism of the raven and the dove and throughout different works of fiction, even within religious texts, one represents life, one represents death. It's not just light and dark. So you, you do have that conflict. I think the way you can frame the two uh, appearances with Scott, you're squinting at me. I'm staying. You're with doing them. good so far. I'm just waiting for to buzz you. No, I'm staying <laughs> in the lines. But when you, you know, you look at that symbology and we've discussed JMS has pulled in bits of theology. He's pulled in various forms of theology, various forms of mythology into this show. So you look at these constructs within here. I mean, you even go back to uh, season one when it was uh, Sinclair's, you know, it wasn't a dream sequence. It was Blonde Fuck 1, Blonde Fuck 2. But you look at the construct he had with the characters in that, and you had the dramatic face, the comedy face. You had the different pieces in there with those different constructs. I, I kind of look at the dream sequence in this the same way. There is so much symbolism in it and the meanings of it are in there in so many different ways. Yeah, I, I mean, so, you know, the the Vorlons, you know, Justin, you mentioned they were like this life force, too. I mean, it it very clearly seems to be, you know, light versus dark, right? Light, I think, represented by the Vorlons. Dark, obviously, represented by the shadows. Um, we've seen Blake, you know, the the life and death. Um, we've, we've seen that play out a bunch. So I don't know if it's, um, if they represent, if Ivanova and Garibaldi represent those different sides, I might not be looking too good for Ivanova. I remember way back in season one, Scott saying something about, Hey, people are going to die. And so far we haven't lost a main cast member. And now that I've seen, uh, Ivanova in her black weeping outfit, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. So I yeah, but if she's the one wearing morning clothes, I'd be worried that someone close to her and not her. Mm. Well, who else does she? I mean, who she got? Sheridan, Garibaldi. Any of them? Any of the main characters? I mean, they're all very close. Hopefully, it's Doctor Franklin. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. I didn't have to. It could be Talia. We don't know. Oh yeah, Talia's in the show. Anyone else <laughs> notice yeah. that? By the way, we we have Kefir. But every time we need to off a pilot, Keffer's not around. So now we have Ramirez. The other time oh, it was Ramirez. the squadron leader. So every time you can see a new pilot in this show, just assume they're going to get offed. It's the red shirt <laughs> yeah. of Babylon 5. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was, I was about to say the same thing. You know, if you're, if you're a uh, fighter pilot on Babylon 5, you might as well wear a red shirt because your ass is dead. 
if you're a fire pilot on Babylon 5 and you're not in the opening credits, farewell. <laughs> well, and they did the same thing this episode did last episode with the Freddy foreshadow of lines. With Shaddy Sheridan was like, what could go wrong? And I was like, who says that? Right. <laughs> I'll be back by 1800 hours. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a good conversation on the dream. I'm looking forward to talking more about it when you guys have gotten through the entire show in two years. Oh, Great. We're already half. halfway through season two. Just saying. We're blowing through them fast. Yeah, it's crazy. Did this so did this episode feel like maybe I think Emily, you said it in your initial impressions like i felt like this episode should be really important but i feel like it's not really important to me yet because i there's so much i don't know so there was a lot of this episode that i felt like i feel like what i'm hearing and watching is screaming flashing lights pay attention pay attention pay attention and yet i ended it going i don't really know what more i know now that i didn't know before because i'm so fucking confused Mm -hmm. a couple behind the scenes pieces just to go along with that is JMS couldn't make this a serialized show right away. The studio was concerned about it. It hadn't really been done before in sci-fi. So you're seeing him transition much more into serialization and you're starting to see that. I mean, they'll pass like three episodes, whether you liked them or not. Um, every episode's kind of led a little bit into the next one and what's going on that will continue. Also, it's around this time in season two that the studio stops giving notes. So for one reason or another, whether they were happy with the way the show was going and didn't care, or more likely PTN was having its own issues at this point, wasn't sure if they were going to be on the air come next year, so they didn't care, so they stopped giving notes. So JMS is starting to be able to do more serialization, which means you're going to start seeing more of this lore stuff peppered throughout. But that also means that you're really not used to it yet. You know, I mean, we're used to it watching just TV in general now. But with Babylon 5, aside from a little bit here and there, you haven't had to deal with this. Every episode's going to have at least something that ties into the next one. But we're getting um, there. And I think one credit on that to the writing, too, even with the serialization, we've all seen with other serialized shows, and I will say Discovery has been bad about this uh, with Star Trek Discovery, is they all but jump up and down and beat you over the head with, this thing's important, this thing's important, pay attention to what we're doing right here. And, you know, when JMS writes these stories, he does it so subtly that you you're left with that, John. You're left with that thing of, I think I just saw something important, but I don't know what the hell it is or why I think it's important. And I, I think that's a credit to the writing and the production of the show. Um, whereas you see a lot of the serialized shows now, and even Deep Space Nine, when they got into it, kind of did the same thing where, you know, they draw so much attention to what's important that it kind of loses something. I think that's another point, too. Most serialized TV nowadays are 10, 15 episodes. Even, you know, when Lost and all those shows started to make it a big thing, the, the, the season arc had been compacted down to less episodes. So having a show with 22 episodes, or in Deep Space Nine's case, 26 episodes, and having to pad it out makes it to where you're going to kind of sprinkle more here and there. Whereas if it was a shorter series, which is why I'm interested in the reboot, because I think the reboot's going to be very interesting, probably being, you know, 10 episodes a, a season. Um, it's interesting to watch them sprinkle this stuff in. But we are very much, and Blake has said it this episode already, the, the foot is on the gas. And aside from maybe a couple bumps in the road, I mean, we are dealing with the Centauri Narn War. We are dealing with now a potential uh, military coup in the Earth government, which we already kind of knew was coming, but now you it's here. And we're dealing with the fact that our main cast on B5 are picking sides. 
which is going to obviously be impactful down the road. Anybody else have anything they want to add about the episode? Um, I think that's the one thing to circle back and talk a bit more about Sheridan, because there, there's been a lot of comments on the prior episodes about uh, Sheridan's demeanor and his attitude towards the command staff. And when we get into that last 15 minutes, that piece in here of Sheridan was put on the station by General Haig, basically, and by Santiago, because on paper, again, Sheridan looks like that military hard ass that Clark would want in Babylon 5. But they straight up knew that he was also a patriot. He would defend the virtues of what they're serving for. So when you think about why he's on Babylon 5 and what his mission's been, you go back to some of the comments he made uh, with the episode with the Explorer-class ship that came through, talking about feeling like the beached whale with his staff and looking at some of his behaviors. I think this explains a lot of that. He was playing the super nice guy to figure out who these folks were, where their loyalties would lie for this moment. I love these points in the show where we can drag stuff from beyond the rim over with the newbies, because I think in half our beyond the rims this season, we have discussed how Sheridan is testing loyalties throughout, and you just don't know it uh, until now, but he is absolutely doing that. And and again, as he says in the episode, he is not seeing if they're loyal to Clark. He is seeing if they're loyal to the oaths they took to Earth. Emily, what do you got? Um, I'm just wondering, like, so Franklin was helping get telepaths out and away from Psychor, and I feel like if that hadn't have happened, it would feel weird for Franklin to have been in on the loop, but now that we know that Franklin has shown, you know, he has a very fuck Psychor <laughs> belief <laughs> somewhere in there, and he's willing to skirt the rules and do underground stuff with, like, the clinic and, like, um you know, covering for people and getting them away. I feel like if we hadn't had that episode, him being there wouldn't have felt right. I feel like that was really important to make it make sense for Sheridan to trust him with this. That's a good point. You know, using D&D as a reference, every one of these guys, the four in Sheridan's room, including himself, are all chaotic good. If they were lawful good, they wouldn't be in on this. But he, Sheridan knows that every one of these guys are willing to break the rules and bend the rules when they need to, and that's what he was looking for. Well, and that's what he even said. We go to last week's episode with Gropos when Sheridan was talking to General Franklin and talking about Stephen Franklin's convictions to his beliefs and his principles. And I, that's what Sheridan was looking for, is mm-hmm. who has the conviction to stand up for what they know and believe to be right. Judge? I feel like the two of you knew what I was about to say, so you <laughs> wanted to hit me with some pre-Franklin bullshit. But, <laughs> but here's what I'm going to say. I don't disagree with anything you said, Emily, and I don't disagree with anything uh, Scott and Blake just said. However, as I put my Franklin hater hat on real quick, what you worry about, though, is he's the wild card, though. He may believe in his convictions, but what he's also shown is that he believes that his beliefs and convictions are more important than anyone else's. He has flat out disobeyed um, Sheridan. He's flat out disobeyed Sinclair. But like focusing here on Sheridan, he has flat out time and time again shown that what I believe is most important. I am always right. I will do whatever that is. And I think that is potentially such a, a wild card to have in your group when you are essentially trying to suss out and subvert an intergovernmental coup that if I was shared and I would have had far more reservations, I might not have brought Franklin in initially. But again, maybe I'm blinded by my haterade of Franklin, but he seems just 
just too far off the reservation to, to fully trust. Justin. Being somebody who actually does like Franklin, I hate to actually agree with John um, on this point, but I do think that Franklin at this point, out of the four of them, Franklin's the one to kind of keep an eye on because being a doctor, he will also naturally be kind of a pacifist as well. So I have to question, depending on how far this resistance ends up having to go, how far is Franklin willing to go? So that's the only thing that I don't necessarily trust about him at this point. Can we, uh, since we're talking about Franklin, can we stay with Ramirez's death scene? And can I pick some nits on how just over the top, crazy bad that death scene was? And that classic, like, guess I'm not going to collect that 30. And then like, <laughs> just dead. I, it, that one made me laugh out loud. He was going to lose anyway. Mars sucks. But I can't support the Dodgers. What the hell? Uh, Even in this universe, I could see they're clearly big spenders and just do whatever it takes to win. Go Mars. I'm hashtag team Mars right now. <laughs> Anybody else got anything they want to add? Okay, let's go ahead and go into questions and predictions. And for those just joining us, we have our newbies ask any lingering questions they may have about the episode and then predict what's going to come after. And then we eject them out the airlock and Blake and I, who have seen the whole show, will discuss it in our Beyond the Rim segment after the credits. So let's go ahead and get questions, predictions, and let's go to Emily first. Questions, predictions. So first question, does Naroon try to restart the Earth Minbari War now that he's on the Great Council and he's obviously a wanker? Like, he is not trustworthy. We don't like him. I was kind of sad Dylan wasn't able to smack him upside the head with the chair, but I'm wondering... With his position on the council now, is he going to try to bring the war back and start some bullshit? Does Dylan actually get to keep her ambassador position? Because it's like they gave it to her, but it still seems tentative. Like they're going to hold this over her and threaten to take it away from her in the future, if not actually take it away from her. But pretty much the other questions I already asked. I feel like your question, like, are they going to take away from, I feel like I I walked away from that thinking that they were like, we don't give a shit about Babylon five, go ahead and do what you want because they're fucking useless. You know what I mean? Like it's a perfect place to exile you because we don't care. Yeah. I'm just wondering if she stays there and if they're going to get uncomfortable with her being there because of her connection to humans. That's it. Justin, question predictions. Well, first off, will we see more of the streams? I kind of hope we do. I kind of want to know if they get into any more kind of shenanigans. And then kind of a prediction tying into a question. Um, now that the command staff is part of this whole resistance thing, I think we're going to start to see a lot more. Again, how will they know? But I think we're going to start to see a lot more Bester. Some more kind of poking and probing between both sides on Bab- we, on, on Babylon 5, where you'll start to see the Psycorp maybe become a little bit more active on the station. So you um, want the gray aliens to come back and you want more probing and poking. Understand? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because that's what they do best. I, I started thinking about the whole Cartman uh, probe scene when that whole machine thing was coming down towards Sheridan uh, in the uh, in the gray ship. But how surprised are we going to be by some of the other people within Earthstone that may be involved in this resistance? Because I've known, I know we've seen some pretty crappy senators and stuff like that um, throughout previous episodes. But I wonder, you know, over time, as more conspirators become revealed, how how surprised are we going to be by who is 
loyal to Earth and who is loyal to Clark. Some predictions. I think Delenn probably will end up losing her ambassadorship at some point, which is going to cause a lot of tension between Babylon 5 and the Minbar, especially when a new ambassador shows up. But I think she'll remain on Babylon 5 kind of more as a refugee. And I think that's where I was talking about earlier, where Babylon 5 kind of becomes her home and her people um, later on. Because I think she's going to still continue to struggle a lot with her identity, and especially with being completely excluded and having her her, her people turn their backs on her completely. And then I do think the Mimbari are going to start becoming a lot more aggressive. Like I said earlier, I think that they will not choose sides during like the in the Narn Centauri conflict, but you're going to see kind of maybe a cold war start to kind of brew between Earth and Earth and Minbar. But that's pretty much what I've got for this one. You made a good point that I don't know if we hit on enough in this episode uh, and moving forward. I do. We were kind of hard on the military a little bit in last week's episode, and I completely understand why with Gropos. But it is nice that for now at least two times we have seen some high-ranking military officials who are not incompetent, which is quite nice. I mean, usually, like, you have the general come on board and they're an asshole and a problem and everything else. But we had Franklin, who, whether you agree with him or not, was competent, and when now we have Haig, same idea. So I do appreciate that, that they're writing these characters to not be one-dimensional. I'm definitely a big Haig fan. I like him a lot. Jesse, questions, predictions? I need to know what Kosh was talking about in the statement that he made both in the dream and the end, and literally just the whole dream and all, you know, all of its glory. Like, I have no idea what was happening, and I would like to know. Which Blake I'm and sure I are going to go out. over the entire dream just as soon as you leave the chat. Please do. Um, and then for my predictions, I disagree with Justin fullheartedly at this point. I think she won't leave. Um, she won't lose her ambassadorship. And I'm going to double down and say that I think she will be reinstated back into the Great Council at some point. So ooh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I can tell you right now, want to use right and want to use wrong. I'm right. Justin's <laughs> wrong. Boom. <laughs> Was that all you had? That's all. Okay. John. Questions, predictions? Surprisingly, I don't really have a lot of questions outside of a major question of what the fuck did I just watch? Because I feel like it was important, but I don't know why. So my question is, why is everything I just saw important? Hopefully I'll find out soon, but it sounds like I won't. Um, but predictions, it's a little bit of a mix of what everyone's kind of said. Where we're at now, though, um, I think the Minbari with the warrior cast kind of taking control. Um, I think they will heat up their aggression towards the humans in as much as uh, trying to, like I said, Emily, all but abandon the Babylon five project and not really have any interest in it, um, but more trying to assert their own power and dominance. I don't know if they'll directly get into a full on war with the humans. Cause I don't know if they're quite ready for that, but I think more to Justin's point, kind of a cold war esque type of battle brewing between themselves and then the humans whose xenophobia seems to think it's humans or nothing. And so I think that'll put them into conflict on top of which having the Narn and the Centauri be at war, I think we'll place Babylon five right in the nexus of the unenviable task of trying to get everyone to come together to face the actual big bad, which is the shadows and how difficult that will be. And I'm hoping and thinking that the land and for that matter, the rest of the Babylon five leadership crew, the ace up their sleeve, I think or hope will be Sinclair and his Rangers. Um, I think they are doing the CIA type of work of going out, getting all of the info, um, trying to figure out where the pieces are on the chessboard, and then hopefully relaying that to Sheridan and company. And so that they can actually make the moves to, to fight what will be a multi-fronted war against, again, the shadows, 
Minbar and Earth against each other, Earth itself and what what's tearing it apart, trying to settle the Narn and um, Centauri beef so that, again, everyone can come together and destroy the um, the shadows. I will be super butthurt to learn that all of that will happen and could have been avoided if the fucking Vorlons would have just gotten off their ass and been Vorlons and helped the fuck out. But that doesn't make for good TV if you go one episode. Here's the light. Here's the dark light wins. Great credits. So that's my prediction. So what you would have liked was a dream sequence where Kosh comes in and goes, okay, John, you need to do this, this, and this. And this guy's a jerk. This guy's cool. We're good. We're set. We're done. Yes. End again, doesn't make good television. But if I like to put myself in the world, like I do when I read books and movies, like I'm there, that's what you should do. <laughs> You have the answers. Share that shit. To your point, I think at the end of the day, uh, I think I'm I'm safe to say you will all agree that when you actually find out what happens, you will say it was good television. Unless Franklin is the hero, in which case yep. I will have to eat 100%. <laughs> Franklin is the president of the universe at the end of the show. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just Here's my prediction. 42. That's my prediction. 42. The answer. <laughs> the answer. The answer. Okay. With that, we will go ahead and let our newbies go for this episode. We will come back to them when we talk about next week's episode, Acts of Sacrifice. So again, I know Babylon 5 is on Tubi now and on Freebie if you're in Europe and other places. So I'm calling out episodes every week just so everyone knows you're on the right track with us. Next week, we will be talking about Acts of Sacrifice. Until next week, I have been Scott and with me has been... Emily. What? Justin. Jesse. And John. And for those who have seen Beyond the Rim, we'll chat with you after the credits. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Gray 17, a Babylon 5 podcast. You can find all the places to listen to this podcast and links to our social media accounts at anchor.fm slash gray17podcast. We want to hear from you, so please join the discussion on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Gray 17 is a part of the Front Row Network and NPR Illinois Community Voices. You can find all the Front Row shows at thefrontrownetwork.com. Gray 17 is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by Warner Brothers or any other owners of the Babylon 5 copyright. All audio clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. The opening and closing Babylon 5 themes are available from Falling Matter on YouTube. And what's out there? The rim. And beyond that? The truth. Welcome back to Beyond the Rim. This is where we talk spoilers. So if you are new to Babylon 5, you should stop listening now and watch the entire series with us and then come back. But Blake and I are going to go through all of the newbies' questions and predictions and talk about where they are absolutely right and where they are absolutely wrong. So uh, first question we had, Blake, is, is Sheridan part Vorlon? Yes. No. <laughs> no. I have no idea where the hell they got that. Uh, well, he, I, I, I can imagine where the, the, when Kosh says you have always been here is yeah. a little bit of a, a red herring. Um, and what we do learn about that, and a lot of this is up to interpretation. So I want to start out by saying that we're mm -hmm. going to talk a lot about the dream sequence, the actual uh novels versus what jms says and everything else disagree okay so for example on this episode the strebes uh in the novels or at least in a novel galen 
from Crusade goes to Zaha Doom and sees that the Streebs are helping the Shadows prepare. So they are uh, tools of the Shadows. But JMS in his commentary has said that the Streebs have nothing to do with the Shadows. They are their own thing. So there is whatever we say here is just what we assume. Mm -hmm. So feel free in the comment section to tell us where we're wrong because it's quite possible we are because depending on where you look, things change. But to that point, I think... um, for me, the you have always been here is Kosh starting to make a connection with John Sheridan. Mm-hmm. And actually, JMS uh, pointed out uh, with this episode that starting here, he is actually the one directing the voice acting for Kosh. And he is doing that because he wants to ensure that the inflection is correct. And we even start hearing in Kosh's voice more emotion than what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Kosh is starting to make a connection with Sheridan, which will turn into a lot more and will end with obviously the death of Kosh, but we're starting to see that. So the, I think it's more of Kosh trying to say to Sheridan that they have a connection. You have always been here. I have always been here. We are connected, but I just have not been able to speak to you yet because you haven't been knocked out in an alien ship. Uh, Blake, do you yeah. agree or do you see it a different I, way? I, I do. I, I agree with you. And again, like you said, anything we interpret here is going to be our interpretation of it. And looking at this overall dream sequence, you know, I think it's interesting. The part where John said, I think this is important, but I don't know why. <laughs> this dream sequence foreshadows just about everything to come. Now, whether it was intended this way, you know, I think a lot of it was planned but and broad enough, but you've got this part with the question of why am I here and do you know who I am? And the whole question about the man in the middle is looking for you. To me, that is Sheridan dies at Zaha Doom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the man in the middle is Lurian. See, now I agree with you. And this is where we're going to disagree with JMS. I completely agree with you. I think the man in the middle is Lurian. I mean, Lurian talks about between life and death, between yep. tick and talk. It makes perfect sense. But JMS has said in his commentary for Zaha Doom, Justin is the man in the middle. Even Justin says in dialogue, I'm the middle man. I disagree with that. I think Justin isn't around. And Justin, by the way, is Mark Twain. Uh, I, I think Justin isn't around long enough to be that important. And I don't think Justin was ever truly looking for him. So I love the idea that it's Lorian as well. Mm-hmm. But JMS disagrees. And it would not be the first time he has told us that we're wrong on this podcast. So... But I think storyline-wise, I have always seen Lurian as the man in the middle. He's the one trying to basically stitch the galaxy back together by getting to a point where the Shadows and the Vorlons can move on, to can end this part of their existence. And he needs Sheridan to do that. Now, I have to be perfectly honest. I was screwing with our newbies when I brought up the symbolism of the dove and the raven. I know, I was squinting at you the whole time. And the reason I was is because, you know, our fellow first one who just happened to throw out there at one point that, you know, oh, Claudia is not in all five seasons of the show, you know, with, with that little spoiler drop during our Claudia interview. So I thought, eh, why not throw out that the, the uh, Raven symbolizes death and see if any of them picked up on that. So I it, I was completely screwing with him at that point, just for the record. But but it also does fit. I mean, with that symbolism, uh, looking at some of the notes within, even from biblical references and other mythologies, um, with the dove and the raven, and that fits within the story of what we're going to be looking at, these battles of light and dark, the life versus death uh, pieces of the show. It's interesting, too, that it's almost a red herring in itself, because you have Ivanova, who is the symbol of death, 
and you've got Garibaldi with the symbol of peace with the dove. But at the end of the day, the person who's going to betray Sheridan is Garibaldi. Mm -hmm. Garibaldi is the one who tries to bring death upon Sheridan for a second time. So it's interesting. But I still say my favorite Ivanova line of the entire series is her on the White Star. Mm -hmm. I am death incarnate. I am the last thing you are ever going to see. That is very true. That is very true. Let's keep on moving here. The next question was, are we hearing the souls of those who fought the shadows the first time? No. But that does, you know, and no on that, but I believe it was Justin who also mentioned the idea of all of this has happened and will happen again. And as we will learn with the shadows and the Vorlons, this is a cycle with them. They go through this. There was the war a thousand years ago. I think it's implied there was a conflict before that one. That there's this cycle between the Vorlons and the Shadows who were left behind after the first ones of how to manage the younger races, how to manage the affairs of the galaxy. And this just keeps happening as a cycle. And part of it that we get to with this one is this is the cycle it stops. You know, this is where Sheridan stands up and says, we can end this now, not just for the next thousand years, mm -hmm. but forever. And I think that part in the dream sequence, when you've got Kosh saying you are the hand, or not Kosh isn't the one who said you are the hand. Um, Ivanova says, yes. you are the hand. And, you know, I think that, you know, you were the hand is that is saying Sheridan's going to be the one to do this different. Mm -hmm. And actually the ones are going to be the one to do this different. Mm -hmm. the one that was the one that is and the one, one that will, that will be. be. So let's keep on moving. Let's get, let's get into, um, we've talked about Kosh enough and we've talked about the dream enough, I think. So let's dive into the Mimbari pieces. Does Nerun try to restart the Earth Mimbari War because Nerun is a wanker? He is, but he does not try to restart the Earth Mimbari War. Yeah, I think Nerun is a smart military tactician. He understands Earth has had 10 years to lick its wounds, and Mimbar is not as strong as it used to be because of all the infighting and everything else. So not, I'm not saying the Mimbari would not win a second war. I think they absolutely would. But it would be much more devastating to the Mimbari than what the first war was. And so I think Nerun just wants to move Mimbar in the direction of where the warrior caste wants to go. Well, I think... And this gets into the whole idea of the mythology with the Mimbari. Obviously, they have Valen. And as we know, Valen is Jeffrey Sinclair. And he's starting to get peppered in more. We, we've heard yes. Valen a couple times now. And as you get in with Valen, Valen obviously has all of the knowledge that Sinclair did up until the point we get to War Without End. Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's been a thousand years. So you've got Mimbari, no, they have all this information that something is coming. The Great Council knows something is coming. I think where we get into the differences are the warrior cast wants to fight this like a traditional war. Mm -hmm. They want to go to war. They want to take the ships and the guns and go have it have it out. Whereas I think the religious cast sees it as more of a fulfillment of prophecy, mm -hmm. almost a holy action unto itself. Mm -hmm. And it leads to a different philosophy on how to approach this conflict and I think that's where the conflict comes in with Nerun and the rest of the Great Council and the religious cast. I mean, in the in the comment, the additional one from Emily was he's going to try to start some bullshit, and he absolutely is. It's going to be the breaking of the Great Council by Delin and the Mimbari Civil War. Yeah, and, and to your point about uh, all of this being the the ending of the cycle, this has already started to happen because we have Delin and the Great Council know the shadows are. Uh, coming back to Zaha Doom, and the Shadows don't realize that they know this yet. And again, this goes back to Jeffrey Sinclair has told them, 
that the shadows are going to be back going to Zaha Doom at this time. And so we have that wonderful scene next season where Delin apologizes to Chikar, saying, yes, you were right. The shadows were here. We knew they were here. And this actually, John has been saying this for a while. Why aren't anyone doing anything about it? Because they're not prepared. They're not ready. Yeah, not if the ready. shadows find out that they know, the shadows will do an all-out attack right now, and they will win. So they're not ready for this fight. They're trying to build up their forces, and we will see that with the White Stars and everything else. So there's a lot built in here that I think uh, with a second watch, you kind of understand more where everyone's coming from. You may not agree with them, but you understand. And of course, with Nehrun, at the end of the day, he is going to be the one who brings this all back together. Yep. During the Mimbari Civil War, the breaking of the Great Council, he is going to sacrifice himself for Delenn. Yep. And in doing so... He is going to change over to religious caste at the very end and allow Delenn to remake the Great Council with the worker caste. So at the end of the day, yes, Nehrun's going to start some shit, but he's also going to be the catalyst for change. He just mm -hmm. doesn't know it yet. Well, and I think that also works out just looking at this overall episode is going to be one of those. We've said it before that when you've watched this the first time, every time you watch it, you get something new. Mm -hmm. And I almost think we should keep a list for our newbies and not maybe have them watch every episode, but give them a go back now that you've seen it all and watch, you know, this being one of them, for example. Yes. You know, now that you've seen it all, you've seen the whole story, go watch this one and see what you think of the dream sequence. And there's a, there's a handful of others that ha to have them go back and watch and see what they pick out of them, I think could be interesting. Agreed. I agree with that. Um, and it's again, we'll be, I'm, I'm looking forward to having these conversations with them as they start getting to know this thing. Because by the time you get through season four, you basically know the entire story. And that was developed because they thought season four was going to be the end of the show. Mm -hmm. So once we get to season four and five, we'll be having a lot less of these conversations and a lot more conversations with the newbies, which I'm looking forward to as well. Yeah. So I think the last of the questions we have were about the Strebes. Will we see them again? We will not, except will not. for they do show up in, in the, the novels. novels. But, but again, canon. Yeah, that's apocryphal too. Yeah, and I think that was the last of the questions. So let's dive into the predictions. So well, there, there was oh, one more about oh. um, how surprised will we be about who else is involved in the Resistance? And we don't really get the Resistance off Babylon 5. I mean, we see when... We see certain ships break away, but we don't get into specifics of like any of the senators we've seen uh, being involved or anything like that. Well, we will learn. I mean, obviously we get to season five and you've got Lockley and it's, I was on the side of earth. And I think that's the, anytime this comes up kind of going forward, that's what we're going to get is who's on the side of earth. The one, the one I will give you an example that's not correct, but I agree with you on everyone, but this is watching Zach's arc. Zach joins Home Guard, or Night Watch because he wants a pay bump. He's yeah. not really a fascist. And then him having to get to a point where he has the courage to listen to Garibaldi, to listen to himself and tear that Night Watch band off. That's the one person we get to see kind of go through that arc. Yeah. Everyone else, yeah, I agree. Let's move into predictions. So now that the command staff is part of the resistance, we will see a lot more of Bester. Well, and, and we will see more of Bester, but it's not so much related to the command staff being part of the resistance. Hell, Bester joins the resistance for a bit. Bester joins, yeah, briefly, because part of it is... The shadows are working with Earth, and they're putting telepaths in shadow vessels, one of which is allegedly Bester's lover, and he sides with Babylon 5 to try to get her back. Your war is now my war. But the other thing is, I think the part, and they'll see this when we get to control, and we get to that episode where Talia gets out at his control. 
as they're going through this conspiracy of light, uh, they're talking to other people, potentially, who can they bring into this circle? You know, we hear them interview Lieutenant Corwin, and they decide that Lieutenant Corwin isn't ready to be brought into this circle. And they go through and they're vetting different people, one of whom is Talia. But before they can bring Talia into the conspiracy of light, Talia gets outed by Lita as control. So I don't think it ever got back to Earth or Psychor yeah. exactly what was going on there until they actually broke away. Mm-hmm. Everyone's pawns of the shadows. And that's, I mean, we, we've discussed this too. The Earth Civil War doesn't happen until after the Shadow War is over, but it absolutely happens because the shadows were playing with everybody. The mm-hmm. Minbari break apart after the Shadow War because it absolutely was because of the shadows. Everything still revolves around the shadows. Next up, Galen will lose her ambassadorship at some point and continue on B5 as a refugee. Not really. No, until she becomes the first lady of the Alliance. I'm assuming she's not the ambassador at that point. Well, isn't it even, she's even vice president of the Alliance at that point, I think. She is, you're right. She is yeah. She is vice president, that is correct. Mimbari will become more aggressive. Uh, I No, I, I think they're too busy worried about their internal struggles. They're not going to be really an active player in all this until Dylan forces their hand and makes them an active player. Mm-hmm. Because when she breaks the Great Council and takes half the cult, half the Mimbari with her, Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because then we have the flip side with, you know, another prediction of we'll not lose her ambassadorship and we'll double down and back into the Great Council, which she does not go back onto the Great Council, but Never. she does reform it. So I'm going to say out of out of our two predictions here, Jesse is the closest to being right. Yeah. Jesse is wrong. Jesse is right. And he's going to love hearing that two years from now. Hi, Justin. Oh. The one part John was talking about as we've looked at the resolution, he said you'd be really disappointed if all this just kind of wraps up in one episode. Oh, Yeah. It kind of does. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit. You've got the Shadow War that kind of does the run through and it it has its run and then it just sort of gets wrapped up with that one little, everybody shows up, the first one say, oh yeah, come with us beyond the rim, we're good, see you later. And that kind of wraps up the Shadow War. But then we transition full on into the Earth Civil War, the wrap up of the Membari Civil War and those pieces. So I don't think he's going to be disappointed, but I th- I think he will see the Shadow War wrap up faster than what he's thinking it will. Yeah, and I, I, I it's interesting to watch the show under the context of things did get sped up. I think at the end of the day, at this point, JMS absolutely intended for the Shadow War to end and then deal with Earth second. Mm-hmm. But it does happen quicker than I think even he wanted to have happen. And then the other note I had is, and this is one area where I think you and I might disagree a little bit with the trajectory of this character is with Lanier. Mm. And there's the actions that Lanier takes when they're on the Membari cruiser after they leave Babylon 5, uh, heading for the Earth Alliance headquarters on Membar, and where Lanier basically almost allows Sheridan to die, and then ends up saving him and then fleeing into space. Well, actually, he doesn't save him. He goes back to save him, but he's already been, Sheridan's already been rescued. That's right, he's already been saved. So Lanier makes the action, but isn't able to have it pay off. Yeah, isn't able to do it. You're right. But I think this sets that up where Lanier has always loved Delenn. And it's clear in earlier episodes, it's clearer in this one. You know, I think Lanier is driven to a point by his feelings for Delenn and his inability to express those feelings throughout the series too. He takes that action in just a momentary lapse. And then I think it resolved too fast. I think there could have been some more there, maybe some time for a redemption after that that we just never got to because of the acceleration uh, that happened. But I I see where that storyline came from. I don't think it was a complete character assassination. Not, I think if we want to talk character assassinations, it's the throwaway line in season five that they heard Commander Ivanova left because she wanted more money. 
Mm. You know, I think that was more of a character assassination than what they did to Linear. And Claudia Christian will say otherwise, which she does in her book, and we'll get to that point when we get to that point. Yeah, you know, I've I've said the Linear issue I, I, is a to me a character assassination, and I think I think you make the point, Blake. Is my concern isn't the fact that he does this. I think good deep characters make bad choices, but characters that we care about like this should be given a chance to redeem themselves. And that never happens. Mm -hmm. Don't we, I mean, we could have easily had something in sleeping in light that would have, you know, maybe a, a two minute, three minute scene where we have Lanier apologizing to John before he goes on, uh, to whatever he's going to go on to, or even a throwaway line at the dinner saying that Lanier has, you know, found peace or whatever, anything, anything. But we left Lanier really being just a spiteful little prick. And it's not what Lanier should have been. And it's not where we were driving to, in my opinion. But we will definitely have time to talk about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> When we get there, uh, I do like that. I love the acting here. Bill Mooney, you can absolutely see in his eyes that he has a love for Delenn that is more mm -hmm. than just platonic. And you can absolutely see in Mira Furlan's eyes that she did not. Yeah. They are acting this so well. She sees him as a loyal confidant, a companion, as she says. And Lanier sees her as somebody he truly loves and they are just talking over each other with their eyes and it's just amazing well that's why i still think some of the best actors in this show are the secondary characters absolutely 100 percent. stephen first bill mooney i think are two of the strongest actors in this show mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and it shows and and it's their ability to do scenes like this and to do them so well and stephen first is I think there are main character cast who cannot hold up in a scene opposite Andreas Katsoulis the way Stephen first did in a few times. So mm -hmm. this is just a fantastic secondary cast. I agree. So another piece is all of this has happened before and will happen again. Yes, yep. but it is happening differently this time. And again, the, I, I, we've already kind of said this, the, the pieces have been set in motion. We just don't know it yet that it is happening different, differently this time because usually what happens is the shadows appear when they are ready. They start the big conflict. The Vorla and them go at it through their, uh, their proxies. And then we go off to our corners and we wait another millennia. Now, the Army of Light, which is just now forming, knows they are coming. That's the difference. And they know they're coming because they got tipped off. And so, and also, the shadows are weaker this time than they were last time because the army a thousand years ago had before on their side. Mm -hmm. So it allowed them to give the shadows more of a weapon than what they would have normally. So the shadows are weakened and they are ill-prepared for what they're going to run into. Blake, anything else you want to talk about with this episode? I think we have covered this episode pretty well, actually. Whenever we're talking about dreams, there's always more interpretations. So I'd love to hear all your comments, uh, either on our Facebook or Twitter, or comment on this YouTube video if you're watching on YouTube. Let us know what you think. What, what do you think the dream was telling us? Do you agree with us? Was the man in the middle Lorian? Or do you agree with JMS, the guy who wrote it? <laughs> that the man in the middle was Justin. Uh, tell us your thoughts. And I'd uh, love to chat with you about that. Just be sure to add a spoiler tag when you do so you can protect those newbies who are watching for the first time. So Blake, we'll be back next week to talk Acts of Sacrifice, which is another one. And you said at the beginning of this episode, the gas is being pushed. And I think Acts of Sacrifice shows that as well too. Yep. So until next week, I've been Scott. And with me has been Blake. And we'll see you soon. Have a good one.
You have always been here.